You are now listening to the Minority Trailblazer Podcast. Let the story begin. One time for the lovers, two times for the ladies, three times for the brothers, four times for the babies. Do you love her? 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 One time for the lovers, two times for the ladies, three times for the brothers, four times for the babies. Do you love her? 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 Brown skin, love her. Brown skin, love her. Brown. Brown skin, love a brown skin, love a brown. She my brown skin, love a brown skin, love a brown. She my brown skin, love a brown skin. Hold me down. Yeah. Welcome to the Minority Trailblazer Podcast, and I'm your host, Greg E.O.D. Culture Change Engine. You already know on this show we interview young, successful minorities in a variety of fields to educate, empower, and inspire our current and future generational leaders. This week has been phenomenal. I am excited. I'm rocking. This season four, y'all. First two episodes, classic. This episode about to be a classic. I just recorded the episode for next week. It's about to be a classic. I hope you're on the way driving home from work or driving to work. You pumped up and you excited. Not because of a bonus. Not because of success. Just because you're alive. You living, all right? So take a moment right now. Take a moment to smile. You alive. You thriving. You tune in to the best podcast on the planet, man. Ah, I'm pumped, man. Hey, first, before I want to begin, I want to send a special shout-out. Not a shout-out. Uh, I want to send my prayers out to, to Houston. Um, send my prayers out to Florida. And anybody in the path of hurricanes outside of Florida or in the world that are in the path of these hurricanes. And it's hurricane season, y'all. So please keep those in your prayers. Also, um, I definitely want to advocate for... Um, hmm. For those that were affected by DACA, um, my recent president made some crazy decisions and the spots will have um, some effects for many, many years to come. So please pick those families um, and those communities that are affected um, disproportionately by that uh, the recent announcement of uh, the removal of DACA. And that's all I'll say on that. But outside of that, man, yo, the Thrive Group program for those aspiring podcasters, authors and speakers. Thank you for signing up. Today, this is Thursday, today at 12 midnight, I will close registration and then we'll be done. I might never do this again, but this four month roller coaster for all those that are going to take this thing to the next level. I'm excited. Of course, of course, of course, the West Coast folks are pissed off because uh, we're going to be meeting at 7 a.m. and 8 a.m. every other Saturday to discuss, build and grow. And of course, if you're on the West Coast, you really can't join. So Hopefully, hopefully, hopefully in 2018, I make a product where we can um, scale a little bit better. But for those that are interested to become a better speaker, to get into speaking or become a better author, to get into writing books or to become a podcast or take your podcast to the next level, you can find more information at gregehill.com backslash thrive group. Once again, it's gregehill.com backslash thrive group. Also, if you haven't already, copy a hoodie. It's getting chilly, man. Copy a minority trailblazer hoodie. We got that black, white, navy, and gray, man. You can find all our merch, hoodies. About to get sweatshirts, t-shirts, and everything else at minoritytrailblazer.com. And most importantly, 
2018, we're having a conference of a lifetime. Speakers are coming soon. Agenda coming soon. Sponsors, if you're out there, reach out to me, Greg at greggio.com. If you want to sponsor, everything is coming soon. You can find more information about the first ever Minority Trailblazer Conference at mtbconf.com. That's mtbconf.com. I think that's all the housekeeping. So this episode is unique in a source because we have somebody that's going to be talking about venture capitalism. And if you are a person of color, you know that only 1% of people of color get founded by venture VC funds. And uh, this this lady has a crazy experience is working with venture capitalist firms and being the first employee at one of them and seeing and being part of a team that has now raised over three, over $3.2 million in capital. So, so I ain't going to wrap all day. We're going to jump right into the show. In 2014, she took a risk. She left her job in consulting to become the first employee of a new venture-funded startup called Jobwell. She withdrew her mission from Columbia Business School to work with Jobwell and go through the Y Combinator, which is one of the most renowned startup accelerator programs in Silicon Valley. And by the end of the summer in 2015, their help, the company raised $3.25 million dollars of seed round funding for Magic Johnson Enterprises and prestigious venture capitalist firms like Anderson Horowitz, Caper Capital, and many more. This summer, she actually left Jobwell and took a seat on the other side of the table being a summer associate at Caper Capital. And this fall, she is now a student at Columbia Business School. So without further ado, I am excited because she's about to drop some bombs she has some good stories and she just has an overall just great vibe so without further ado i would like to introduce anastasia going into the minority trailblazer podcast welcome <laughs> to the show thank you greg thank you thank you what an intro they're quite <laughs> famous <laughs> no i try i try i try i try so um one i'm excited to have you on the show Anastasia, you can't let me, me hang it. No, I'm here. Sorry about that. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> um, I listen to your podcast all the time, and I thought, man, this is a great initiative, and uh, it's something that I thought uh, I wanted to be a part of. Amen, 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 amen. So as we always start the show off, please, please, Anastasia, can I call you Miss G? <laughs> sure. Because I know I'm, I know I, because I watched the, it was a Disney movie named Anastasia. Was it, was it Anastasia? Anastasia. Uh-huh. Yeah, the Disney movie named Anastasia. Actually, it was a deep movie to low key. Now I'm thinking about it, it was like really deep. It was a girl that went through a lot of stuff. And it, I know I'm just going to slip up and just call you Anastasia. I don't want uh, to discredit your name and, and all that other <laughs> stuff. So I just got to call you Miss G. And even though I don't know if you got a Miss G swag though. So I, where's the happy medium? What do people call you? Stas. Stassi. Stas, Stas. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I like it. I like it. I like it a lot. So, I get, okay. I get Sta- two responses from that name. People think I'm a rapper or <laughs> <laughs> or something. All right, Stas. Oh, hit us with a quote that you live by and share us a story of how you apply that quote with your everyday life. So, uh, one of my favorite quotes is be stubborn on the long term vision, but flexible on the details. Mm. And it's by uh, Amazon founder and CEO, Jeff Bezos. Okay. <clears throat> and I think Jeff, if you're listening. <laughs> um, and I think those words are, are incredibly powerful. I think uh, oftentimes a lot of people, they have a certain vision for their lives. Maybe they have a map of exactly how they're going to get there. But we all know that life rarely, rarely <laughs> goes as planned. So uh, I like to hold on to that quote. 
I do have uh, a, a grand vision. I have things that I'd like to achieve. But over the past few years, I've become very, very flexible on how how that actually rolls out and how I get to uh, those end goals. Mm. So what's your grand vision? And, and, and you can give me a t- how have you been flexible? My main my main goal is um, to be financially independent, mm-hmm. to be able to take care of my parents and live a certain lifestyle at the same time. Um, family is really, really important to me. So being able to kind of, I guess, pay them back for all the sacrifices that they've made that um, have helped me get to where I am today is, is really important to me. So that's my grand vision. Now, how that happens, again, <laughs> right? <laughs> kind of up in the air. Um, I'm leaving that one to God, but yeah, yeah. I am. I'm focused on that that angle. Yeah, and before we get get into the interview, when you were going to college, right? Mm-hmm. What was your? I don't think I asked this enough, but what was your what was your goal like? Because you probably went at 18, right? Mm-hmm. What was your goal going in? Like, what did you want to do, and what did you see for yourself, like at 25, at 30, and all that? Uh, ooh, that's a really good question. So I don't think I had that all mapped out, right? Again, I just kind of held on to that big picture. I've always held on to that big picture, and then um, in terms of how I was going to get there, it was always make sure I get good grades, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think throughout my entire life, getting good grades has never, ever led me astray. So going into college, it was mostly about making sure I got those grades and that I explored different opportunities um, to be able to figure out what that path exactly looked like. Okay, okay, okay. So as we jump into the podcast for our listeners, the way this show is going to rock today, well, we're going to talk about our beginnings, then we're going to talk about um, consulting for a second, then we're going to jump into the startup world, specifically the venture capital world, and she's going to share with us kind of her story and how she segued into that. Um, then we're going to talk about the, the next adjustments actually getting funded. So um, talk working through that experience. Um, and then she made a decision like she also is in business school as well. So we're going to take this show on a variety of places. So I just want you to stick to and stick with us. So my dear, my dear, my dear, let's start before this venture capitalist, before all this stuff. Who are you? Because I know you mentioned earlier your parents, they had a, they sacrificed a lot for you. So kind of share a little bit about your backstory and um, before college. Sure. So I am originally from Jamaica. I was born there and my parents moved here when I was about four. Mm -hmm. Um, I think just being Jamaican, there's this grand vision of what America is. And, um, you know, there are just a ton of opportunities there. So at that time, I think it was back in the back in the 70s and 80s, my family started to uh, move here. So my great aunt, my mm-hmm. grandmothers, my great grandmothers, all of them were coming up here. And um, eventually they each had about uh, a million kids. They each had about <laughs> 10 kids on Whoa. my dad's side and my mom's side. Uh, she's one of four. Mm-hmm. Um, but they all started to come to America and my parents, they came as well. Um, we moved to Jamaica, Queens, South Jamaica, Queens. Um, Is that where 50 Cent from? Yes, okay. I was waiting for you to say <laughs> South Quake Jamaica Dick, you heard me. I remember that line, yo. <laughs> <laughs> right. So grew up in South Jamaica, Queens until I was about, I want to say 13 or 14. I have a little sister. We're seven years apart. And it was really that core family unit that took me, you know, um, took me up 
up until this point. Um, let me see. I went to a I went to a public school in Queens, basically through junior high school. Mm-hmm. So just, you know, local public school. My parents, um, they were essentially what one might call blue collar workers. So my mom was a beautician mm-hmm. and my dad, he worked in shipping at a freight company. Mm. And, um, yeah, just went to public school. I got good grades. Uh, my parents, they, they made that very clear, right? If I had anything, if I was responsible for anything as a kid, it was one thing, right? Mm. And I was doing well in school. So I kind of stuck with that, right? If I didn't do well, I'd get in trouble and, and no kid wants <laughs> to get in trouble. So, yeah. um, yeah, pretty much colored inside the lines and I did really well in school. And again, right, that, that never led me astray. So, uh, in elementary school, I think I was a part of a few different honor societies and, and always. They had honor societies in elementary school? What kind of what kind of system did you go to? <laughs> what? I have no clue. Honest elementary school honor society. What? I was just doing my one job. I just happened to you know fall into these things, but did really well there. And I think my uh, principal, my elementary school principal, she she took a liking to me, and she told me that uh, she taught classes at a program, a school in the Bronx. Mm-hmm. It was called the Fieldston School. Mm-hmm. And the program was called the Fieldston Enrichment Program. Now, had no idea what this was, what this meant. Uh, my parents, they thought anything to right, keep you focused on your schoolwork and get you out of trouble. It's free. Sure. You know, you can go you can go to these to these Saturday classes taught by your principal. So she invited me. She told me to attend. And I did. So every Saturday throughout the school year and every day through the summer, I spent it at the Fieldston School, going wow. through the Fieldston Enrichment Program. Mm-hmm. And from Jamaica, Fieldston is located in the Riverdale area of the Bronx. So um, many people have an idea of, of what the Bronx is. But, uh, you know, you go a little bit more north and there's a neighborhood called Riverdale. And it's the exact opposite of what you and probably everyone else is thinking of, of the Bronx. Um, I mean, houses that I've... I've never seen before. Um, but anyway, so I is it like suburban. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yes. Yes. It's like um, it's the last stop on the one train. So you get off at Van Cortland Park. Then you walk up these this hill and there are these majestic homes and there are a ton of um, really great schools up there like the Fieldston School, uh, Horace Mann. And I think Riverdale Country Day School is up there as well. Wow. And I, again, right. Had no idea what this was. Um my parents just sent me to make sure I, I stayed out of trouble. So, um, but from Jamaica, Queens, that commute was easily two hours each way. So, and I was probably what, 10 years old, two hours each way for our round trip. Mm-hmm. Wow. So did that every Saturday and every day during the summer with another group of maybe three yeah, I think it was three kids also from uh, Queens who attended my elementary school. And we did regular things. We um, studied vocabulary words. We did extra math. It was basically uh, an academy of sorts. Um, but the goal of that program was to uh, get students into another program or one of three programs. One was called uh, Prep for Prep, 
which oh, yep, I'm yep. familiar with. Tristan yeah. Francis, shout out episode, I think 50, 59, yeah, something like that. Yep, a, t- a ton of people went through the Prep for Prep program. Um, they basically take inner city minority students and prepare them to attend elite private schools in the city or boarding schools throughout the country. So there was Prep for Prep, there was the Albert G. Oliver program, it's now known as Oliver Scholars. Then the last program was A Better Chance or ABC. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, those other programs, they require tests to get in. So from Fieldston, you know, I took these tests and I actually took the test for Prep or Prep and I didn't pass. You basically oh, wow. take, uh, uh, it's a standardized test. It's called the SSAT. It's like secondary school admissions. Wow. Something. But you take the SSAT to get into these schools and it's basically an aptitude test. And I didn't do well. Now, as I told you, right, I had always done well in terms of grades my entire life. So when this happened, I thought, oh, my goodness, my life is over. <laughs> right. How old were you? I was I was probably 10. You said my life. Yeah. Like, I was like, oh, my God, my <laughs> life is over. My parents. I are don't want to do this life. anymore. <laughs> right. Um, but then they allowed me to take it again. Right. They thought, you know, maybe it was the pressure being around all the other kids. Maybe that had something to do with why I didn't do well, because they saw my grades didn't do well again. So Mm. they didn't admit me to the program again. Devastated. Right. But then I got into the Oliver program and that was basically the best thing that could have happened to me. Got into the Oliver program. Same deal. uh, Saturday classes, uh, classes on the weekends. Uh, excuse me, uh, classes all throughout the summer, basically to prepare you to succeed in these schools. So they introduced my family and I to uh, the private schools around New York and the boarding schools around the country. And again, right, completely different world from what Southside Jamaica Queens was. Uh, The campuses, they look like college campuses. You stay in dorms. I mean, you know, beautiful, beautiful, um, campuses and facilities. And I remember touring all of these schools with my dad. Mm-hmm. And I actually fought going to going to these schools. I did not want to go to boarding school. Mm-hmm. I told I, I, I told my parents, you know, I wanted to go to a private school in New York City. I did not want to go away from home at the age of, you know, 14. Mm-hmm. So um, we were deciding between schools and my parents, you know, they don't know anything. My parents, um, they didn't go to college or anything like that. Not really familiar with, uh, you know, the educational system and how yeah. it works. So they're deciding and they ask, they go back to my principal and they say, you know, she's, she's going to these boarding. She has a choice between these boarding schools and between these, um, these day schools in the city, mm-hmm. what should she choose, right? And my principal looks at my parents and she goes, send her away. <laughs> wow, banish her. Like, whoa. I thought, I looked at my principal in that moment, He's right? Like, He's only been supportive up until that point. Bro. I, I was like, why would you say that? Why would you tell my parents that? Again, right? <laughs> Had no idea what she was setting me up for. But I saw that in, you know, 14 year old uh, eyes as the ultimate betrayal. <laughs> right. So obviously, right. They took her word for it. Like, yeah, you know, Mrs. Jones, she knows best. Um, 
we'll do that. So we toured all the schools. And again, I fought it, right? So I have an attitude <laughs> on all of the tours. I go on with my dad and I told my dad, you know, we're, we're touring these schools. I'm not going to any school if I don't count enough people of color on my visit while we're walking around campus. I can't be here if it's not diverse enough. <laughs> and he's like, sure, okay. So we tour all of these schools, right, all across New England. Mm -hmm. And then uh, one school in particular caught my attention. So you can imagine in New England, yeah. very, very cold, yeah. seem lonely, right? Um, but I went to the Lawrenceville School, mm -hmm. and all of the buildings were red brick, right? So they it gave me wow. this kind of homey feeling. Yeah. It was... Um, in New Jersey, so only about an hour and a half away from home compared to, you know, the Exeters and Andovers located in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. So I love that. And then while I was my tour guide, she was another um, she was another black girl. Oh, yeah. And they I set you up. They was like, oh, we got Nancy. She black. Oh, send a black girl. I was so excited. <laughs> Uh -huh. And um, then walking through campus, I also counted uh, more people of color. At How that many? That I can't remember the exact number. Like seven I or eight? Then it was more, probably. probably. <laughs> uh -huh. Now, right, keep in mind, like, right, these schools, they it's probably less than 10% of the people are people of color. But I counted more than I did on the yeah. other campuses. So that kind of sealed the deal. It's like, Dad, I'm going to Lawrenceville. That's a done deal. He was ecstatic because, again, it was closer um, than all the other schools. So that's kind of where I went for high school. And uh, the Lawrenceville School, it's, again, changed my life. And I had no idea, right? As a kid, you're just kind of going with the flow, doing what adults tell you to do. Um, but that school really opened up. Uh, it showed me what I could be. Because I saw what other people who lived, um, who lived via different means, I saw how they were living essentially. So mm -hmm. I went to school with. Good question. Mm -hmm. So on that note, as we transition, as you get to to, to college, I, I don't think I've asked this before. But first, I, I'm a I'm a big music guy, music buff. Could you label? I always try to think of quarters, right? Um, this is the interview is like in four quarters, right? So we have high school, we got the college, then we have. Um, VC, then we got future and whatnot. But if you had to, to, to name a theme or a track title to the first quarter of high school, what would you name it? And then what would be like the three, the three things you learned from that experience? Who? Uh, yeah, I had to, I had to switch it up, right? <laughs> I had to switch it up real quick. I had to change the track. <laughs> um, I would say high school. That was probably called the warm-up mm -hmm. by uh j cole okay so again it was just kind of a time of of exposure right being exposed to a lot of different things and getting ready for the quote-unquote game right the, the the game of life um again had no clue how it was setting me up but looking back that is very very clear just like warm-ups do you know prepare you for the game i think that was uh, very, very applicable. In terms of the the three things that I learned, um, it was to trust in myself and my abilities. So at Lawrenceville, I learned that I really could compete in the world despite the playing field. Mm -hmm. 
So um, I, I was successful in South Jamaica, Queens, but I was also really successful in uh, a ritzy boarding school environment like Lawrenceville. And that was really, really empowering because I'm sure, you know, when people aren't exposed to certain things, mm-hmm. they just, right. It's just, you just naturally become intimidated because yeah. you haven't seen it before. You haven't been in that environment, but succeeding in that environment, which was the opposite of Jamaica Queens, just empowered me um, even more. So I learned how to compete there and I learned to trust in my own abilities. The second thing that I learned was how to ask for help. So mm. I had, um, there was a time, maybe my sophomore year, where I was really struggling with math, but I was good at math. But I made sure to take advantage of the time I could spend with my teachers because they lived on campus. Um, So I I took advantage of the time I could spend with my teachers in the classroom, outside of the classroom, Uh, my my academic advisors. I let them know that I was having trouble in specific areas. And they basically worked with me, right, to make sure that I was able to be successful and do well. Mm -hmm. So that was uh, another important experience, just learning how to ask for help. And then the third thing that I learned was that um, life is way bigger than anything that you can see at any given time. Mm. So again, didn't really know what I was getting good grades for. I just knew ultimately this would... um, this would be beneficial and this would help me somehow in the long run. And I think how that has manifested itself has become apparent over time, right? In a way that I couldn't see at 14, 15 or 16, right? But the main idea is that you stay focused on your day to day and on the things that you need to, you need to tackle and opportunities will, will present themselves Mm. at a point in time. I love that. I love that. So what college you go to? Let's briefly talk about your college experience. What college you go to? And then um, what was the decision after college? So I went to the University of Pennsylvania. You paid. So you, so, you, are you, uh, so you know Tristan then? Uh-huh. Yes. Okay. He was in the class below me. Um, he went to actually the rival boarding school called the Petty School. Um, rival boarding school. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. That's funny. Um, but yes, we, we know each other. Um, and so, yeah, I went to the University of Pennsylvania. And the way I chose to attend that school was um, so at Lawrenceville, people tend to go to a select few of schools. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people go to Princeton in in every class. But I didn't really like, I didn't really like that environment and, and couldn't really see myself there. And then a lot of people also went to, uh, you know, schools like Harvard and Yale. And, and, um, when I, I learned about this, it, it seemed like my peers kind of set the standard for me. Right. So yeah. I kind of said, okay, well, most people are going to these schools. What are these schools? Um, I figured out they're kind of the Ivy league schools plus, all the other top schools, you know, kind of Duke, Stanford, NYU, things like that. Um, So I looked at these schools and I thought, okay, I'm basically going to go to the best school that I feel in the school within that, 
you know, that pool of quote unquote top schools, I'm going to choose the one that I feel the most comfortable at. So I basically lined up all these schools, right? The Ivy League schools plus a few others. And I visited all of them with the Oliver program. And then I thought, um, I visited Penn and it was perfect, right? Mm -hmm. I'm from the city. Um, I'm from the city. It was dead in the middle of of Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. It it wasn't too far from home, about a two hour drive. And then on top of that, it was the most diverse of all of the quote unquote top schools. And that's basically how I made my choice. Looking back, probably not the best, not the best criteria, but it worked (laughs) out for me. And, Uh um, I was, um, you know, really, really happy, happy with my choice. Mm, I love that. I love that. So going into, do you have it? Did you have any internships during your time at, uh, at, at Penn? Yes, I did. Um, I, I, I got lucky and a woman at Morgan Stanley, she was a vice president in HR or maybe it was in diversity. I can't remember, but she also from the, from the inner city, she was Latino. Um, she worked at a bank and, she attended a boarding school. I think it was called the Taft School. But she wanted to give people of color exposure to Wall Street yeah. at a very early age. So she decided to create an internship program for high schoolers out of these boarding schools. Wow. So I was actually, um, again, right, you have no idea what anything is. But people are saying, oh, you know, internship at, at Morgan Stanley Sure, you know, you should definitely apply. But people are telling me to do it. I say, sure, right? Why not? And I actually received the opportunity to intern at Morgan Stanley starting um, the summer after my junior year of high school. And wow. I interned there throughout college. Man, that's that's phenomenal, and uh, we don't have time right now to jump into to exactly what that looks like. But um, in short, man, what did that what did that experience? Cause I know growing up in high school changed you, and uh, in, in, in the boarding school. But how is that? If you could say one nugget, what? How did that change you? Because I I know a little bit about the the benefits, but also the horrors of Wall Street. So how how was that experience for you coming from where you come from, blue collar background, um, private school, and then jumping into the wolves? I don't know what division you were in. I don't know uh, of, of Wall Street. I don't know if it was sales and trading or whatever. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, h- how was that? So I went from travel and expense management to the financial control group to sales and trading to investment banking. Ooh, so I the IB- okay. See, <laughs> I got to see a lot of different um areas within the bank and wealth really (laughs) right right um that's exactly what i learned from that experience right it showed me again not i saw this at lawrenceville too but it basically compounded um kind of what wealth looked like to me um and i took that experience and i ran with it i i think i i gained an experience uh a love for investing through that experience. So the summer that I was on the trading floor, that was actually the summer right before the big crash. Oh, wow. <laughs> right. So I was on the floor every day just watching the the tickers, watching the you know the market fall and seeing the anxiety on the floor. But, uh, you know, before that, <laughs> um, I really got to understand just basically, right, the stock market, what it is, what it does, why people are so infatuated with it, and why there are whole businesses built around it. 
And um, I think I developed my interest in investing from that experience. Mm, I love it. And uh, before we jump, I I have to have a a 10 minute segue into this because uh, a lot of times and I see from your experience in high school and in college and just a couple key opportunities. First, you put yourself in the right position and uh, you believe God put you in the right position to 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 have these opportunities. But it's crazy that. Like, you know, you go to other schools in New Jersey and Durham, all across the country, that there's a lot of um, individuals with a lot of talent. They're very smart. And unfortunately, um, just the, the, the people, the right people weren't, not to say right people, but they just weren't given so opportunities. So how do you deal with, and this is jumping the whole gun, but since we're here, how do you deal with, or do you deal with the double consciousness? Because coming from, you came from working class family, but last couple of years working in, in VC, going to Columbia now and doing what you do. Um, it's like, it, we're all, we're all African-American. We're all black. We got, I get that, but it's just different. So how do you deal with kind of like, yo, being, cause you should love your life. You should love the opportunities to be gifted. I know you have struggles. We're going to get into some, some struggles as well, but, but then you might look at somebody else the same age. It maybe could have been just as smart. But they didn't go to the, they didn't get a chance to, nobody told them, okay, go out. Maybe they stayed public. And then it just, their environment kind of brought them in. And now it's two different tracks with the same type of potential. So what do you, do you ever kind of struggle with that or, or think about that? It's really interesting that you, that you asked that question. Um, so I don't think I necessarily struggle with it. I embrace it and I try to use the, the position that I'm in to benefit others, right? Those who didn't get the opportunity, right? So mm-hmm. in real life, I am very reserved, right? I wouldn't think about sharing my story in this way. Mm-hmm. But um, at this point, I kind of feel like I have a responsibility to, you know, I might not be exactly where I am or where I'd like to be at this point. But I think, uh, just sharing my journey and my story, I think it's really important for others because I've seen how I've been able to just derive strength and motivation from other people's stories. So um, I know that one thing that I can do right now is share my personal story in communities like this for others. And the other thing is that um, that kind of double consciousness is actually what led me to make a huge uh, career decision about two, two and a half to three years back. Um, so after college, I, I was on the corporate route. So I decided not to start my career in finance and I started in consulting instead. Oh, wow, 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 wow. That's crazy. Yep. So, um, I went to Booz Allen Hamilton in, um, in the Washington DC area. And I was there for about a year. Then I transitioned into strategy and corporate development. And so after I was about what, three years, yes, I was about three years out of um, undergrad and I saw myself going to business school, right? Because when I was at Morgan Stanley, I saw everyone had an MBA, right? So whether I wanted to be in finance or not, success was tied to some sort of advanced degree for me. So I always knew I wanted to go. So at that time, I was getting ready to apply to business school, right? I was um, going to drop my applications in January of 2015. Um, In September, 
2014, I went back to my high school. It was uh, an alumni event. We were celebrating 50 years of students of color. Mm -hmm. So went back and I ran into one of my old friends and we were in the same class together at Lawrenceville. And he basically told he had the same opportunity at Morgan Stanley, but then he switched over to Goldman Sachs and interned at Goldman throughout college. Wow. And so, you know, we were catching up and he was telling me, you know, I'm leaving my job at Goldman Sachs. I'm starting this company and I'd like you to join. So, you know, I'm like, you know, what company, what, what exactly do you guys do? And um, he was always someone who I knew was motivated, mm -hmm. business minded. You got to do if you leaving Goldman Sachs and start a company. Like. <laughs> right, right. So I knew that whatever he was doing, he was serious about it. This wasn't a quarter life crisis. He wasn't <laughs> trying something on a whim, right? I knew that this was a real thing. So he told me more about the company. It was called Jopwell, J-O-P-W-E-L-L. And basically, it connects um, people of color with companies for internships and jobs, right? And he told me about that. And I thought, I admit, I wasn't initially blown away by the idea because I thought, well, you know, that's great. But I've been in programs like MLT, you know, the Morgan Family Diversity Recruiting and all this stuff. And, you know, we've been through all of these things. There are a ton of programs like this that exist. But then... Um, as I started to think more and more about it, right, about how I got to those those places and those programs, it was specifically because I attended a school like Lawrenceville. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, when, what I started to realize was that Jopwell or the company that he was trying to start, it was a more scalable approach. Right. To putting opportunities in the hands of people of color. And when when that hit me, right, that all the people who don't go have the opportunity to go to Lawrenceville or to go to Penn, they're still just as talented, but they don't have these outlets and Jopwell would be that outlet for them, right? Everything clicked and I decided to uh, start at Jopwell um, in, in December of 2014. Mm, a, my biggest question with that, um, because there's a lot of entrepreneurs that listen to the line and a lot of them are solo, right? Mm -hmm. And what convinced you about the what's his name? Porter Braswell. Porter Braswell as a leader, as a company, him building. What were the key things that allowed you to leave your job where you were probably making some good money traveling, taking vacations, doing all this stuff to leave for a startup? Because um, a lot of us may have friends and shoot, even myself, I have friends where I've been producing at a high level what I do for many years. And there's still, a, I mean, I have some friends that were like, eh, I haven't asked nobody to join me yet. But I said, that's that's a conversation that will probably be kind of difficult. So what like what were the key things that said, yo, I'm going to risk my health care. I'm going to risk <laughs> like a lot of stuff to join this nonprofit to help black folk, mm -hmm. people of color, because I know it's just not just black people, but just in general. Right, right. Um, so just one correction, it's not a nonprofit. It's actually a for-profit okay. business. But, um, so Porter co-founded the company with, um, one of his colleagues named Ryan. And so I knew Porter, right? Since high school, I knew what type of person he was. I mean, I have memories of us. He's a very big thinker. He generates, 
uh, crazy ideas and he rallies people around them. Right. But I, I have memories of us at Morgan Stanley. You know, he would always bounce his ideas off of me. So he would say, you know, Sass, um, I have, you know, what do you think about this? Like, wouldn't this be great? Like, shouldn't we do this? And I would say, you know, yes, that's a great idea. Yes, that's a great idea. No, that's a terrible idea. So we would actually go back and forth about business ideas, you know, back in high school. Right. So I knew that kind of thinking about business and kind of entrepreneurship and uh, just being a hustler, go getter. I knew that was all in his DNA because I had known him for so long. Um, now, Ryan, I met Ryan and then he was the more, I spent hours and hours just shadowing Ryan through, throughout, it was probably October of 2014. And I realized that he was the more analytical thinker of the two, right? So when I put those two together, I saw how their skills balanced each other, right? So Porter kind of very um, high level, grandiose ideas and thoughts Ryan is a lot more tactical and he's an analytical thinker. And I thought that balance um, was a really great balance to have in, in a, in a team of co-founders on top of that um, Porter's experience mirrored my experiences, right. In terms of being exposed to these diversity recruiting programs and pipelines very early on Ryan as well. Right. So I knew that um, on top of them complimenting each other, this was a problem that all three of us were very, very intimately familiar with, right? So uh, maybe other people, you know, they might have the same idea, but they probably couldn't execute it the way we could, having lived the experience. Yeah. And then on top of that, their networks, right? So they're very, very savvy at kind of rationing their their social capital, if you will. So they're connected to a lot of the right people, quote unquote, right people through life experiences, through their different networks from school and work. And I knew that with those, the combination of all of those things, that even if the idea didn't come to fruition in exactly the way that we originally, that they originally planned, I knew that they would be successful regardless. Mm. If that makes sense. And so the combination of all of those things um, really, really led me to join. So I uh, joined in December 2014 and I, I figured, right, I still kind of have a backup plan. I'm applying to business school January 2015. So this company, I have a few months to see what this company was about. Um, if they do well, you know, we'll see. If they don't, I quote unquote have my, my ticket out, right? <laughs> I, I was confident. <laughs> I was confident that I was getting into business school. So, you know, I had my, my plan B was firmly in place. So, you know, I, I, I jumped in. I joined the team and it was an amazing experience. We, we were scrappy. We grew a lot. We were in an office about the size of a closet in a WeWork in New York in Soho. Mm -hmm. And, but, you know, I jumped in, we all jumped in and over the next few months, we grew a lot. We got into the Y Combinator program, uh, which is the top accelerator program for startups. So 
after that experience, we moved to San Francisco. Hey, stop, stop, months. stop, though. With the Y Combinator, please, please. Don't, don't, don't do it in disjustice, man. Please kind of give some more context to that because you don't just go to a, a closet with three employees and we just move, we just moved to Austin, San Francisco. Like, what is that? Like, what does that look like? Like, how did that happen? Because people are looking like, hold up, how does that work? So Y Combinator is essentially an accelerator program for startups. So when companies, um, they want to grow really quickly and they want uh, access to advisors, people who've grown and sold startups of their own, they uh, go through these accelerator programs, right? That provide them just a ton of resources to ramp their businesses up as quickly as possible. So we applied to that program and when we got in, we moved to San Francisco, but it wasn't it wasn't in an office space at all. There were 10 of us. We lived in a five bedroom house in San Francisco. Um, so, you know, two wow. people, two people per room. We it was all y'all in the company? And we worked out of that. Mm-hmm. We lived and we worked out of that house. The office was the living room. Um, dope, it though. was uh, a crazy experience, right? It sounds like something out of a movie. Yeah, like on the, it, yeah, it sounds kind of weird too, though, man. Like that's not weird, <laughs> not weird, but it's like a lot no, of stuff. That's just I ten was, cats. I was afraid, right? Yeah. I was afraid that it was going to get weird. But <laughs> it, it weird. we were all so passionate about what we were doing. Uh, a lot, yeah, of us yeah, yeah. From from before and and you know, just kind of using the company and the mission as a beacon, we kind of just ran full force. And the experience in that house was one of the best experiences that I've ever had in my life. Mm, how long were you in the house? Three months. Okay, three months. And in that three months, how, how much were you able to accomplish? Oh, man. After those, those three months, um, we basically it culminated in a round of funding. So we were able to to raise our seed round of funding and we raised about three point two five million dollars um, from some of the, the top investors in, in Silicon Valley. And um, that basically made made it all worth it. But even when you get to that first that first point of, of that first round of, of major major funding. It's still, it's only just the starting line, right? So people like to think, you know, oh, I've made it. We raised this round of funding. We're good to go. No, 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 no. The game was just beginning. So after we raised all that money, then we relocated back to New York. And then, you know, that's when when the grind really started. Yeah, so what did you do? Like, so what happened? So when people say, when can you break down... First of all, let's do three things. One, let's break down. And I want you to paint the picture on how unique getting that type of funding is in venture capitalists for our audience and our listeners they may not be familiar um to what is a seed round like what is what exactly is it because people throw around that term all the time but people that if you're not in the business know how you're like seed round what does money get to you all this other stuff and then what happens when you get money it's like a they just deposit in your account and y'all like just just work use that working capital and then also what's attached to it so i know it's like four questions in one but that's how i do it (laughs) okay so um Essentially, I guess I'll just start from the very (laughs) beginning. So venture capital is basically just a type of funding. So when businesses want to grow or when people want to grow their businesses, they can seek funding or they can do that in a number of different ways. Right. They can use the money that they've saved up personally in their bank accounts. They can go to a bank and take out a loan. They can um, 
you know, borrow money from, from friends and family, they can, or they can do something called, uh, you know, raising venture capital, uh, funds. So venture capitalists, they're basically people who invest in high growth businesses with the expectation of a very, very high return, um, on their, on their initial investment. So they'll basically give uh, an entrepreneur money in exchange for a small piece of ownership for their company. So your company might be worth a hundred dollars. You need $10 to grow. So the venture, you know, the VC gives you $10 and now they own 10% of your company. So that is in a nutshell is how venture capital works. And um, the, 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 the way the funding works is divided into different stages based on the phase of the business. So mm-hmm. very young companies um, uh, say, you know, it's just it's just two co-founders. They're trying to launch their idea, get it off the ground. What many people will do is they will uh, do what I mentioned, what I just mentioned. So they might use all, pool all of their personal assets. They might tap their friends and their family for a little bit of money just to help them get the idea off the ground. Right. They might take a small loan just to get the idea off the ground, maybe build a product. Um, that's typically called a quote unquote friends and family round. Mm-hmm. Um, after that, you know, maybe th- they've used up all that money, they've grown a little bit and they need more money to grow. So, okay. So com- uh, companies can grow organically. So you probably hear companies, you know, they'll start, they'll start making revenue, then they're, then they'll be profitable. Then business owners will use the profits from that business to reinvest and make their businesses even bigger. Right. Mm-hmm. With when you're working with tech companies, the goal is to kind of to grow as quickly as possible, right? Because often you're tackling a new industry and you want to be able to capitalize on that and grow quickly before other people realize and jump in the industry, right? Think of think of Uber and Lyft, right? Mm-hmm. So Uber, you know, in the early days wanted to grow as quickly as possible before other companies like Lyft and Via and all of them uh, jumped in to, to do the same thing. So, um, what was I saying? Oh, right. So there, there are different stages of funding. So, um, back to your friends and family round, the seed round is the next, is the next stage. And that's essentially when, you know, you might have a very small team, you might have uh, a working product Mm -hmm. and you might be serving, um, a few people, right? You have a little bit of traction. You have some users, people using your product, your service, um, but you need more money because you want to grow as quickly as possible, right? So the profits that you, or the revenue, the the revenue or the profits that you may or not be making at that stage aren't enough for you to be able to use that alone to grow the business. So you need money from outside people and that's where venture capital comes in. Gotcha. I love that. And and why, I guess the bigger question is, I know that you've mentioned and it's it's, it's, it's data out there, like 1% of VC goes to people of color? Yeah, less than 1%. So the industry is about $80 billion. So think of all of that money floating around. And um, yeah, less than 1% of it goes to founders of color. And do you think a lot of part of that, because I mean, some we could chalk it up to, to, to racism and all that other stuff, but a lot of it, it's kind of in my head, I want you to just because you're in that space. But now I think about even the high, when you went to high school, right? And same thing with Tristan. 
when he went to high school, it wasn't the fact that everybody was just so phenomenally great, so great that everybody got in these top schools because a lot of times the academic advisors had relationships with these top schools. So it's kind mm-hmm. of like a, a in, inward pipeline. So you believe that, of course, in VC, I mean, a lot of that is just networking relationships. So, of course, we're not really going to be sitting in no tables because we, that we that's a bigger conversation why we had to say, but it's like, we we don't really had we we never had an original footprint to begin with, so it's gonna it's gonna have to be people like yourself, uh, people like the people the, the co-founders of Jobwell and so many different others like the the Blavities of the world, the um, there's so many other black tech startups to really start growing in those spaces in order to kind of increase that footprint. Or do you think it's really systematical? Like, nope, he's black, we can't do it, or it's gonna be a lot harder. Hmm. So I think. You can never boil these things down yeah. <laughs> to, to, to just one thing, right? One is just about exposure, right? Many people, I, I don't think I knew what venture capital was more than, you know, before I started Jopwell, right? So I think in our community, exposure is is one, one thing, right? Um, I was only familiar with the traditional ways of growing a business, like taking out a loan until I even started at Jopwell, right? And became aware of tech and things like that. Uh, The second thing is uh, biases, right? So a lot of people who are are, uh, in control of this money, um, if if you pitch them your idea and they don't understand it for whatever reason, because maybe they haven't lived the experience, right? They didn't go through, uh, uh, they didn't grow up in, in Jamaica, Queens and, and luck out and get to this school and, and, you know, be put into a diversity recruiting pipeline. You know, they might not understand your idea because they haven't lived it, right? Mm-hmm. And they don't have people close to them who have lived it. And when these people who are controlling the money, when they can't relate to the problems that people of color might be choosing to tackle, um, you know, the money gets distributed uh, disproportionately, Mm -hmm. right? So I think a lot of different things play into it, but I think exposure and just kind of biases are are a huge part. Mm, So what do you think made Jopwell so unique to be able to kind of raise that that type of fine, because that's not nothing to sniff at. So what do you think made Jopwell so unique? And specifically, I guess it's another two-question thing. You mentioned it before, but is Jopwell for college students, is it for high school students, is it for grown adults? Like, what's the clarity? Like, what, and, and is, it, is it a platform you you put, upload your resume? Like, what what, what exactly is it? Yeah, it's, a, it's an online, uh, it started off as an online platform, but it's blossomed into more of a community. So it's for people um, I want to say 18 to 40, but our sweet spot is really people in college. So 18 to about 28. So, you know, young professionals, people who are, uh, early to mid career professionals of color. So black, Latino, Hispanic, uh, native American, and that's who it's geared towards, but it's basically an online platform. You would sign up, create a profile, um, you know, upload your resume, fill in, information about your career experiences, your future interests, and then uh, the platform kind of matches you or pairs you with opportunities matching your profile. And, you know, if companies are looking to fill certain positions, they go to Jopwell um, to diversify their kind of hiring pool. 
Jopwell will connect these companies with individuals on the platform who meet their needs. And then on top of that, there's also a, uh, a content platform. So I can't think of one place on the internet where um, people of color can go to get advice on their experiences as people of color in the workplace. And Jopwell or its content platform called The Well um, is wants to be that resource for people of color. So where people can, uh, you know, exchange advice, um, different things like that, develop their careers to to move forward. Okay. Love that. Love that. Love that. So y'all just got this 3.25. What do y'all do? What's next? Does everybody <laughs> throw a party? Do y'all get on a yacht, celebrate? Mm, everybody, yeah. everybody's salaries increase. <laughs> like we, we get into new offices. We get new max. Like what, what happens after that? <laughs> Definitely not. Um, we go back to New York and that's where the grind starts, right? So now we have to find an office space for 10 people. Ooh, then we in New York. To, right. Right. And we were adamant. Many people asked us, you know, why don't you guys stay in San Francisco? And, you know, um, that's where the heart of Silicon Valley. And we were adamant about being a New York based startup. One, it's where a ton of the companies are and companies are half our clients, right? Half of our clients are individuals, right? People of color looking for opportunities. And the other half are major corporations looking to hire. And New York is just kind of an epicenter of that. Um, so yeah, we move back and we find office space and and we get to work. That's we were at the top of the school year at that point. So um, it was like September fall of 2015, and then it was just time to to grow the platform, right? Get people jobs, um, and that's what that's what we did. Mm. So in order to kind of to to wrap this seg this this part of the segment up, uh, where where what are where you're at currently as far as with, with with raising funds and whatnot, and then kind of not not more so where the state of the business currently, Jopwell, and 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 then what have you had to boil it down to? I guess two of the biggest takeaways that you got through your experiences. No, three your experience is working with a, a startup, um, working with see raising funds and whatnot, what would they be? So, um, the company is still doing well. It's still growing. When I, I left, uh, the company was about 25 employees. Um, again, right. Still growing, still chasing the mission. So, um, you know, it's, it's kind of surreal to think back to, to look at that and then think back to, to when I first joined. So still, you know, still chasing the, the mission and, and the vision. And then, um, I believe your other question was what the, the three lessons that I've learned from this experience. Yeah. That can help some other people that are, I mean, are interested or thinking about the VC world, thinking about the startup thing and just thinking more efficiently because I mean, there's two, there's two schools of thought. I've always bootstrapped. I mean, it just my personality is not really wired to take investments and doing all that stuff. So I just really never went that route. But for somebody that is interested in like, huh, maybe my idea could do that. Like what, what would be some best practices for them? Mm -hmm. So one thing that I think made us really successful and will make any business successful is having a well-crafted story. And when I say, um, well-crafted. I mean, part of the reason why uh, we were successful was because every person in the company at that time 
had a lived experience and was personally connected to the problem that we were trying to solve, right? So that uniquely positioned us as the ones to solve that problem at this time, right? And when you go into a meeting and you're armed with with the lived experience to solve your problem, I mean, it's it's invaluable. So I think that's one of the things that, that made uh, Jackwall really successful. And then the other thing that, that I learned was, or I became fascinated with throughout my experience, was how to build a, a company culture. So I'm sure you hear um, statistics about this all the time, about how um, diversity is one of those, is one of uh, those overlooked kind of metrics in the beginning of a company, right? Founders, they're focusing on growing their businesses and focus less on how diverse their team is. But I think culture um, is one of those things that's also overlooked by founders in the very early stages. Again, because they're focusing on the product and building a, a viable business and bringing that to market. But, you know, the people that comprise the company are the most valuable asset to that company. And as a leader of the company, it's really, really important that you're very deliberate on what that culture looks like within your company and how you sustain that over time, right? Because um, the the happier, uh, the more motivated your people are, right? The, the more quickly your vision and the mission of the company can come to fruition, right? When everyone in the boat is rowing in the same direction with the same amount of intensity. Mm. So, uh, also really important. And then um, the third major thing that I learned was, this is a tough one. I feel like I've learned so much that it's always yeah. hard. <laughs> it's always hard to just narrow it down to three. But the third most important thing is basically how to um, use or leverage your network. Right. So I think networking has this really strange connotation. You know, people think it means um, using other people and all sorts of things. But um, building genuine relationships with people is important and being vocal about the things that you're working on and what you need to, you know, bring that idea to fruition is really important because you never know where the help or, you know, a connection is going to come from, right? Um, we've met so many different people throughout our lives and they've had so many different experiences and you just never really know. Um, I am a person who I like to kind of just work towards my goals and, you know, maybe I will, I will share it when I get there, right? Maybe, but there is a lot of value to just being vocal about what you're doing and what you hope to accomplish. And, you know, if it's inspiring enough, people will, people will jump on your boat, right? They'll try to join you, uh, 
in working towards that 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 mission or that vision, or they'll point you towards other people or resources that can help you get there. Mm, I love that. Love that. Love that. So um, as we transition, getting close to the final round, a couple quick questions. One. So did you are you still at Jobwell? No, I'm not. Okay. Okay. I left Jobwell in the, at the end of May. At the end of May. So, and then, cause I know you had a, a, a great internship. Can you, if, can you mm-hmm. briefly, briefly speak about your internship and, um, your, your, first of all, your decision briefly on why you chose to leave and then the internship and what is you currently doing now? What is you currently doing now? Where you at now? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, um, throughout my, throughout my time at Jockwell, um, I became very interested in, venture capital, right? Because the idea of of convincing people to invest money in you was right, it's just it's so novel to me that I just couldn't help but be infatuated by it. And when Porter and Ryan, when they went on the road to pitch investors, they would always come back to the house or come back to the office and they would give us a debrief of exactly how the meeting went, the questions that were asked. Um we would help them put together the pitch decks. We would help them review the pitch decks. We would, uh, you know, watch them. Uh, they would give us their pitches and, and all that stuff. And I just found that process to be to be very interesting. And I told you I had um, kind of a latent interest in investing. I've always wanted to become an investor in different types of things. So not necessarily venture capital, but that could be stocks, that could be real estate, that could be movies, TV. Like I just like the idea of investing in many different types of things. Um, so throughout this experience, they I learned more about venture capital. And then Throughout while I was at Jopwell, I've also been kind of laser, laser focused on trying to identify the things that I am good at or better than, you know, 90% of people at, the things that I really, really enjoy doing, and the things that I think um, would afford me. The a type of the type of lifestyle that I hope to live in my future. Um, and I started paying attention to what it was that I was spending my time doing when I had free time, what I was reading, what I was consuming. And I, I realized that um, it had a lot to do with technology and investments and media. Um, so I started to kind of hone in on that and focus in on that. And um, I realized that before, you know, I, I was transitioning. I was going to attend business school in, in 20, 2017. Um, I knew that I had an opportunity to basically um, test out my theory, right? I saw venture capital as a future. I knew I had an opportunity to see if if that is really where I want to kind of, um, you know, plant my, plant my roots. And I was laser focused in you know the beginning of the year on finding uh, a summer internship in order to be able to break in the industry you've probably heard a ton of um people saying how difficult it is to break into venture the venture capital industry uh, because the networks are super small there aren't that many opportunities and i just knew that i had a launching pad um to be able to do that considering my my job well experience and i, I ran full force towards it 
uh, to achieve that goal. And, and that landed me at Kport Capital for the summer. Mm, love that. And briefly, 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 Kport Capital, what is that like? So it's a social impact investment fund. So it focuses on investing in companies that close gaps of access, opportunities, and outcome for people of color and low-income communities. So um, I thought that mission was very much in line, again, right, with my background, with who I am, my lived experiences. So I thought that there was basically no better launch launch pad for me in terms of venture capital. Um, and yeah, when I, when I found out about that opportunity, I just, I was preparing, I, I mean, months in advance because I knew what my goal was. Right. And I knew that I would, um, eventually get there. I just needed to be prepared for when the opportunity came. So I've been preparing for venture capital in interviews for months, you know, getting familiar with KPOR, its portfolio companies, the story, everything. And then it just so happened that so every year I do a solo backpacking trip to a new country. And this this year I went to Peru. So while I was out in Peru, um, I was uh, I, I received notification that I got an interview for KPOR first round. Oh, video. wow video interview. But I, you know, I only have literally my backpack. I only have t-shirts, sneakers, like, you know, I barely have internet. The internet is so bad. And I knew it was bad because I would, when I checked Instagram, I wasn't even able to load, you know, the basic 10, 15 second Instagram videos or post my own. So, um, because of that, I knew there was no way I was going to be able to do a video interview right while i was backpacking so i try and this was ha- this happened at the beginning of my trip and my trip was about 10 days so <laughs> I, you know i'm going back and forth via email at night you know my emails are 12 hours apart because i'm out during the day and you know all, all different types of things the t- the time difference so um tr- i'm basically trying to get the deadline pushed back. They told us that we had to turn around a video interview in about two days. So I'm trying to get my submission deadline pushed back because, well, you know, I'm out of the country and I'm not just out of the country, but I'm literally, you know, in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> so, um, the, the hiring manager, you know, she kind of was just like, Oh, you know, it's a, it's a 15 minute interview. It'll be really quick. You'll be fine. And, you know, I, I just wasn't able to get it pushed back. And uh, eventually what I had to do was I had to cut my trip short. I was in Cusco, Peru at the time. I had to fly back to the big city, to Lima, rent a hotel. And when I backpack, I don't stay in hotels. I stay in um, in hostels or with locals. Um, so I had to fly back to the major city, rent a hotel for a night, knock out the interview. I think I had on you know, a T-shirt or something like that. But I had to knock out the interview. Um, and it was a, a really great decision. I remember I was so nervous about it. I asked my friend, you know, should I, should I just wait and let them push my application to round two? Or should I just heck no, you bet, well, you, when, that, when that window open, you better get in that window. Right, right. And there were, you know, should I just, should I just do it now? And she told me, she said, you know, what's for you is for you. 
So it doesn't matter when you do the interview. If you are meant to have this opportunity, you're going to get it no matter when you interview. I was like, whoa. I was like, first of all, this is why I have you as a friend. (laughs) (laughs) Second of all, you know, that makes so much sense. As I said, I've been preparing for this, right? So I was ready to go. Literally, it was about my, um, it was about my internet connection because I was fully prepared for the interview. And, you know, when she said that, I, I was kind of like, I, I have to make this happen. And that's what I did. And, and it worked out in my favor. But, um, you know, just hearing all the things, right, about how tough it is to break into venture capital, I kind of didn't want to leave anything to chance. And, um, yeah, ran with it and it, and it worked out. So before we conclude and go to the last round, there's a couple of things I want to discuss. First, 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 you just published a recent article, which I had an opportunity to read uh, last night. Last night. Is that? Yeah, that's a word. Last night, man. And it was crazy because, um, matter of fact, you know, you break the article. Share share kind of what, first of all, share what you talk about. Because we never talked about your blog. So share what you usually talk about with your blog and um, a little bit about the article and why you chose to drop it now. Sure. So um, this summer, while I was at KPOR, I had the opportunity to well, all of the the associates. We had the opportunity to basically work on um, a capstone project alongside our regular investment duties. And while I was at the at the fund, I became really just kind of interested in the fundraising process as it pertains to people of color. Um, it's really interesting how huge. Uh, The tech industry is how large VC is. It's about an $80 billion industry. Um, And even so, people of color are still kind of lacking the ability or the access to to this capital in the way that other people are. So with that said, uh, like KPOR, whenever people approach the, the fund, if for one reason or another, the deal doesn't meet our specific investment criteria, what the team will do is refer it to other VCs in Silicon Valley who might be interested. Um, But they didn't have kind of a similar contact list of angel investors. So I thought I would kind of take that on. Mm -hmm. And I contacted a number of angel investors of color all across the country to just kind of get them on the same page, right? Talk to them about their experiences, why they decided to become angel investors and kind of with the hope of building up a database for KPOR uh, to refer those smaller deals to. Um, so the the article is called um, Five Angel Investors of Color You Don't Know But Should. And the idea is that, um, you know, most people, they're not familiar with venture capital or the different ways of raising money to invest in their businesses. Right. And a lot of people in our generation who might be familiar and who are pitching VCs, you know, less than 1% of them are getting funded. So I think the best way to kind of go about that is to just shine some more light on other resources of funding. And there are plenty of wealthy individuals uh, who have the kind of excess capital to invest in these businesses. So I wanted to get to know a few of them and I profiled them or five of them uh, in an article on my blog. It's called A Little Peace of Mind. So it's a play on words. So it's actually a little and P-I-E-C-E of mine, M-I-N-E. 
Wow. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's dope, man. So question, because I don't ever, I don't think I've asked it on this podcast. Like, yo, so how does it, so say if somebody had an idea, would they just reach out like code via email and introduce or what does that process look like? So venture capital funds, they typically, um, it's kind of an internal network, right? So people tend to refer deals to each other. So the best way is to get an introduction, um, a, a warm introduction from a mutual friend so or a mutual contact rather. So um, I would start by kind of combing through my LinkedIn network, uh, my personal networks, and just figuring out uh, a way that um, I'm connected, potentially connected to a venture capital fund. Um, and then from there, have that person kind of reach out and make the introduction for you. I think that's the, the best way to get in the door and pitch your idea. Now, uh, KPOR specifically, um, their focus is kind of um, decreasing gaps of access, opportunity, and outcomes for people of color. And we know that most people of color probably don't have an in or a mutual connection to these venture capital funds. So KPOR actually allows an online submission process. So if you have a business that falls within that investment criteria, you can actually just submit it online to their website and and they review every single deal that comes in. Other funds now, they, their email, their general email addresses are public, right? But I think the the pitches that they pay most attention to are the ones that come from a mutual contact or a warm introduction. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And no, my only conundrum with that, and I think that's just the way the world works, is a lot of times it says, oh, we want diverse, we want underserved black. But, and not to say there's different types of black, but, and I look at it, usually sometimes it's just certain types of, of black individuals. Like, it just, it's kind of not even diverse with this plethora of underserved communities. I, I, I see these funds that say, oh, they have, they use a lot of great terms, but they only, I see they only invest in people that went to Ivy Leagues or people that have certain pedigree or X, Y, and Z. And a lot of times there's certain, of course, if you go to certain schools, certain institutions, institutions that the probability of you having that type of deal to scales, idea to scales is, is probably higher. But I, I, sometimes I am, and I'm not speaking on, yeah, true. go ahead. Huh? I don't think that's necessarily true. I think ideas are they're a dime a dozen, right? I don't think you have to come from any particular background to have a great idea, right? The best businesses are just solving problems for real people, right? So anyone can can really come up with a great business idea. I think maybe in this world, uh, what, what a certain pedigree might give you is just access to certain networks. But other than that, I think it's up to us to kind of change that narrative, right? So um, plenty of people have ideas no matter where they're from. It's just about uh, understanding the problems that they're trying to solve and kind of giving them equal access to be able to do so and to do so successfully. Yeah, I, I, I understand that. I still think at the end of the day, the, gate, the gatekeepers keeps a lot of uh, a lot of businesses, a lot of businesses out with similar ideas. It, it's it's a lot. It's it's complex, and I think um, at the end of the day, I think continuing to to post articles like that and to continue to advocate in myself um, as well as to continue to advocate and also get my money up so I can invest how I like. Because I mean, I can never. I think a lot of times we try to argue about 
how people invest funds. Well, at any day, it's their money, so they can do what they want to do. So if you have something to say, you want to reach a different demographic, then uh, get your coins up and, and invest in that demographic. So I think I see some some things that I've I've witnessed um, personally, not because I've never reached out to the VCs. That's not my that's not my thing. But I've, I've seen I've seen a lot. I've seen a lot at, uh, on different lens, and I'm like, yo, this is this is wow. You say this, but it's like that. So I know. The part of the reason why I'm going so hard right now with my noted trailblazer and just in general outside of this context is to to open up doors where it's uh it's less of a roadblock, um a less of a huge roadblock. But in it, but in anything, there needs to be a roadblock because if everybody could pitch a thousand ideas, I guess uh, if, if somebody said, hey, I got a I got a million dollars, 20,000. Hey, bring your idea. You have a 10,000 idea. So I definitely get the grind and um, the aspect of it. Uh, question, 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 question. I know as we wind down before we get to the culture change round, I did. I I, I know we talked about it earlier, but if we can kind of get to um, a struggle, maybe, and I don't want to label it a failure because I don't, I don't, I don't really like that terminology. And every time I put it out, people are like, yo, I don't, I don't use the word failure, so that may be like a, a like <laughs> like a chub. So if you had a, a struggle that you've had in your life, um, could you could you share that? But all, but most importantly, share what you learned and how you grew from it. <laughs> okay. Um, so I don't usually like to, you know, kind of share my failures. Um, but actually I think this one is a really good one because it was really, uh, important to me. So when I graduated from college, you know, I started my consulting job and, um, I was let go about a year into it. And that was a big moment for me because essentially I mentioned this earlier, but, um, I essentially grew up, I had a very kind of conservative upbringing, right? Um, it was basically, you know, if I followed the rules, I would do well, I would succeed, right? That's all I had to do. Follow the rules based on what my parents taught me and everything would work out. So I think that was the first time where I felt that I quote unquote, followed the rules. I did everything that I was supposed to do. And, um, I was let go in a downsizing, right? So that's something that I had absolutely no control over, but it had a really, really big impact on me. And I think, um, from then on, I basically decided to start taking more risks and embracing, um, taking chances because life throws different things at you. Um, so you might as well live it how you would like to live it by your own rules, um, and, and kind of go from there. And it's actually why, um, I started taking these annual solo backpacking trips because, um, you know, I just felt like I needed to challenge myself on a regular basis, step outside of my comfort zone and do a lot of different things, um, to make sure that I would be comfortable with risk and comfortable with things not going my way in the future, because that was basically the only guarantee in my life. So, um, I continue to take these annual solo backpacking trips and, um, They've really helped me personally, professionally, again, in just making sure um, that I'm always stepping outside of my comfort zone, that I'm that I stay scrappy, that I stay resourceful, um, and all those things. So that was definitely a big moment for me, and uh, I hold that lesson with me to this day. Mm. I love that. 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 So, um, as we, as we get to our close, I got the rapid chain, uh, rapid fire round. We ask five rapid fire questions to get five rapid fire answers. You ready? 
I think so. <laughs> <laughs> what is the best piece of advice that you have never received? I'll just go with, um, yeah, with taking risks and just being open to to new experiences. I personally was always uh, taught, you know, to follow the rules, to color within the lines, and I followed that. And um, you know, things didn't necessarily work, so I went the other way, and I like this this path way better. Mm, I love that. If you could add one habit and take away one habit, what would they be? If I could take away one like personal habit? Yeah, if you could add one habit or and then if you could take away one. I work, I'm a night owl and I work really late into the night. I'm really productive at night, but I would actually flip that. And um, I'm trying to get myself into the habit of waking up at 6 a.m. every single day. Uh, I've been working on that for about two years now, <laughs> so <laughs> not very successful, but um, I think flipping that habit and starting the day earlier would make me a much, much more productive person, personally, professionally. Mm, I love that. Love that. And then what habit would you take? Uh, what habit would you? Uh, so you would take away the night owl and you would add mm-hmm. the. OK, got you. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is your favorite book and why? Ooh, my favorite book is. A book that I read recently, it's called um, Why Should White Guys Have All the Fun? It's by Reginald Lewis, or it might be, it's not an autobiography, it's a biography of Reginald Lewis, and he's basically the first black person to run, uh, maybe it's a billion dollar business, to own and run a billion dollar business. and I found that story extremely just motivating um, because what I took from it is that not that I need to be like Reginald Lewis and, you know, be this successful millionaire, billionaire or anything like that. But it was what I took from it was that I really need to make sure that I stay focused on my personal talents and gifts and using that to uh, make a better life for myself, my family, and contribute to the world. Mm, love it, love it, love it. And, that, and the, sh- the link with that would be in the show notes. What is your biggest fear? My biggest fear is just not uh, reaching that ultimate goal that I talked about in the beginning. So just being able to support my parents, um, give back to them and take advantage of all of the opportunities that they've given me. Um, So again, I can't harp on this enough, but I think, or what I'm focused on personally is making sure that I identify those unique qualities and talents that I bring to the world um, and making sure that I contribute them to the world to the best of my ability. I would not be, I, I wouldn't feel fulfilled if say, you know, something happened to me, I passed away knowing that I wasn't able to bring those talents to the world. Mm. 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 I love it. This ain't your first time on, on, on air, on live. This is some good <laughs> stuff, man. Good. I need to, I need to hand over the podcast to you. See, a <laughs> <laughs> uh, last question. If you were the president, our last question for our, our ultimate last question, but if you were the president of the United States, what is the first thing you would do? If I were the president of the United States, the first thing that I would do, these questions are tough. <laughs> um, that's that's a very hard one. I think I would start by evaluating some of our, I guess, core uh, 
poor services, I guess you would call them, like education, right? Like I think um, education has been a huge, um, a huge factor in my life. And I would, I want to bring that to other people as well. But I think a lot of systems in this country are broken, right? It's like education, it's healthcare. I mean, you know, I could go on and on, but I would start by just taking a fundamental look at those things and trying to put together innovative teams to tackle them, right? Because I think the government hasn't really um, adapted much or been innovative recently. And uh, I think that's what's needed to solve really big, really hard problems. Love it, love it, love it, love it, love it. So as we wrap it up, I always call myself the culture change agent and every single person I have on the show is a culture change agent in their own right. So the last question, last question of everything. If you could change one thing about society, most specifically our African-American culture, what would it be and why? I would change. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what it is about people um, that. I don't know. There, it's probably internal insecurities, but I think right now, especially, there's a ton of just hatred, right? And I think it it really does stem from personal um, unhappiness. I would really, I guess, try to find a way to instill, um, I guess, self love back into our community. I think. Um, people are focusing way too much on what others are doing, why that's wrong, why they shouldn't be doing what they're doing. But at the end of the day, every human being on this planet just wants to be happy, healthy, and to be able to provide for their families. Um, that's a really big, really vague answer, but I really think that we're missing the mark in terms of just going back to the foundation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I love that. I love that. I love that. I love that. So, so, so um, as we close, as we close, can you share with our audience where they can find you at online, via web, social media and all that good stuff? Sure. So um, I write on my blog at a little piece of mind dot com. So a little um, P.I.E.C.E. O.F.M.I.N.E. dot com. Um, I write a ton about music, media, tech people of color. Um, and I'm also the same. My handle is the same across Instagram, Twitter, and that might be it, but it's, um, Stasi seven. So S T A A C I seven. And on LinkedIn, I'm not the only Anastasia. (laughs) I'm probably the only black Anastasia Gordon. So, um, CIA, you'll be able to find that. Mm, I love it. I love it. I love it. So Minority Troublemaker Nation, make sure you leave a feedback after you get off the show. And also, 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 I want to say a special thank you on behalf of Minority Troublemaker Nation and myself for giving you well over an hour of your time. So I appreciate that, Ms. G. <laughs> no, I should be thanking you. Uh, nah, 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 nah. I, I, like I always say, I just try to uh, be one of the first to break break new people because I know in like 10 years when she VC funding people and doing all this big stuff, she just she can't forget about the little people, man. So I uh, appreciate your time. I know the trouble is a nation. You know what to do. Two things. What are those two things, Mr. Hill? Number one, make sure you subscribe and share with a friend. And number two, change the freaking culture. Good night.